All right, y'all, John chapter 18. Here's what it says, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew, and drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know, that's our text for today. So if you are just joining... Uh, cross life and just tuning in uh, one of the questions might be why are you preaching this it's not Easter that's what I'm really excited about it's not Easter and we're going to talk about the arrest the passion of Christ the cross of Christ in the coming weeks and it's not Easter so we don't have to do it all in 45 minutes we get to do it we get to really push in to what scripture shows us if we were also going to look at this, this sermon and how could we structure it, we might do this. Now, who are you in the sermon? Who are you in the text? Are you Peter, who's impulsive and you're going to fight for Jesus? Are you the officers who hate Jesus, but you're going to fall down one day? Are you Jesus? Which you, you would say no. But we would look at who the examples are. But you know what the, the heart of the text really is? Christ embraces his calling. Christ embraces his hour. So the whole title of this sermon, all right, is we got his hour, his claims, his cup. That's the title of the sermon. Do you know what the three points are going to be? His hour, his claims, his cups. We are we are not um, very creative over here. So those are the three points. We're going to look at his hour has come. We're going to look at the claims that Jesus makes, and then he says, "I will drink of this cup." So we just want to really break those down. But really, if we are just dropping into this, and let's, let's just start back in verse 1 and go for like the first three verses. When Jesus had spoken these, these words, sorry for my stutter today. Um, feels a little bit more compounded. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And y'all, what is going on in all of this? I mean, what really is going on? I mean, I mean, the disciples, we know this. The disciples and Jesus have been meeting. He's in his final hours. We have spent um, probably a couple of months now going through John 14 through 17, and Jesus' final words, and then his high priestly prayer for them was a couple of weeks ago. So they've been doing this, and now they've gone out, and they've crossed the Brook Kidron, which is basically an intermittent stream. So it's, uh, it's uh, a, an empty stream bed, 
uh, one season the next there's a, a stream flowing through but they've crossed this they've gone up on the mountain this is mount of olives because there's an olive grove there and they've entered into a garden which we know from all of the other gospels this is the garden of gethsemane that's what's going on and while they're there then the soldiers come and they've got torches and weapons and you're reading this and we're like what in the world is going on and all those things are going on but i'm really stepping back and saying but what is really absolutely going on here y'all and what's absolutely really going on with judas and the betrayal the arrest the impending suffering all of this is jesus's hour has come that's what we've been preaching through john we're actually hold your place in john 18 and go back to John 2, 4, and we're going to hit about five verses, five or six. But what's really going on in all of this is that Jesus' hour has come. Go to John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus' first miracle. And John 2, 4 says, And Jesus said to her, to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I don't know if you remember us preaching that sermon so, so long ago. But we talked about the context of that. And he's saying, I understand that this is a, a problem for you, but this is not why I've come. My hour has not come yet. And we talked then of that there would be an hour for which Jesus came. Flip a few pages, go to John chapter 7. We've got three verses in John chapter 7. John 7 verse 6. Jesus said to them, them being his brothers, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now look at verse 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And he's referenced his time again there. Now look at John 7.30. Look at this one. So they, they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because what? His hour had not yet come. So even though they hated him and the tension is growing and there's adversity coming towards him, they can't touch him because his hour has not yet come. So Jesus is in absolute control and authority over his life. They cannot touch him because his hour has not yet come. Flip a page, go to John 8 verse 20. And John 8.20 says, These words He, Jesus, spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. Flip a few chapters now to John 13.1. In John 13.1 it says, Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. But you hear it in there. And when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world, here it is, He loved them to the end. And then John 17, 1. Andy preached uh, John 17 a couple of weeks ago and did a great job. And he and I were talking through John 17 and we decided that no matter who preached it, we would preach it all as one prayer because it was Jesus' one prayer and we would hold it all together. But you could preach a whole sermon on John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, so He's already been me with His disciples. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. 
And so, y'all, that's what's really going on in the text. The betrayal, the arrest, the, the impending uh, suffering that Christ uh, would face, the mockery, the crucifixion, the murder, His blood spilled. All of this is His hour has come. That's what's going on here. And so in this hour, as He is stepping into it, literally going to step into it, that's what we want to focus on, is that these, these verses are not about who are we in the story. These verses are that Christ has come and His hour has come and He will go to the cross for you and me and for all who will call upon His name for all time, from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, for all of eternity. We will be His because of what He does. That's what's going on here. Matthew Henry, I always love going back to Matthew Henry. It's the first commentary I was ever given. Um, so I love Matthew Henry's commentaries. He always finds a way to just make it really sink in. And for me, it was this. He said, sin began in the Garden of Eden. So we have sin over here beginning in the Garden of Eden. There, there, the curse was pronounced, and there the Redeemer was promised. And it's in a garden that the promised seed now enters into conflict with the old serpent. So what began in the garden and sin as a result of it, now what begins in the garden will be the Savior glorified forevermore. And so it's in this garden that Christ... His hour has come. It's, it's what's about to happen is that His sinlessness and His purity are about to be absolutely violated for the sake of sinners. He didn't just walk into the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. He walked into His hour. So at His hour, at this time, Romans 5, 6, I, I, I love this, this verse, Romans 5, 6, and it's the last part of 6, even though the front part is good too. But I like the, the wording right here. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you go a little bit further, it says, God showed His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's a great reminder for us, and for us to tell others as we meet them for coffee and lunch, and we're bypassing them at work and stuff, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly, He died for the ungodly, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were on our way. Not whenever we were seeking Him and almost there. Not when we had our life cleaned up. Not when the addictions were gone and the sin was under control. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and His death was at the right time and it began in the garden in that moment. So His hour has absolutely come. That's what's going on. on. The darkest hour of creation has culminated to this point, and the Son of God is about to be beaten and murdered because His time has come. So He makes some claims in that moment. right? So we're going to keep moving through that. And I have to remind myself too that, that uh, as I look up, uh, I see Moses back here, I see Sam, I see Jackson, I see William. Like I, Our kids... And those who have said, hey, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, we want to make sure they understand the text too because we are equipping the saints. And so what's going on in this is not that Jesus is out of control, y'all. It's that Jesus is in absolute control. He knows exactly what's going to be coming to him. Okay, so he's going to make some claims. And so we're going to pick up in verse 4. And I'm actually going to read verse 4 and then we're going to stop and then I'll come back to his claims. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Yo, I want to stop right there real quick. Just the wording of chapter or of verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forth. In John 6, 15, I don't know if you remember, but they wanted to crown him as king. The crowd 
called Jesus. They wanted to put a crown on His head. Whenever the crowds would come forward to make Him their King, Jesus would withdraw. But now that they have come to seek to put Him on the cross, He steps forward. Knowing all that would come in in the coming moments, hours, and days, He steps forward into this. Instead of withdrawing from kingship, I'm sorry, instead of focusing on Him withdrawing from kingship, let's focus on the King to the cross. So he knows all that's about to happen. He comes forward and he says, who are you looking for? And he knows who they're looking for. So all this chaos, if you can imagine being the disciples in that moment, they're there with him. You can see the torches coming. You can hear the soldiers coming. And whenever they get there, Jesus steps forward and he says, who are you here for? And he knows exactly who they're there for. So I just want to remind you again and again, that all that happened to Christ was according to the definite foreknowledge and perfect plan of God to redeem sinners and saints, to redeem sinners to become saints. So they tell him, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus makes three claims that I want to look at very quickly. He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Yep, that's me. So he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Number two, he says, you need to let my disciples go which I think is pretty significant. And number three, he says, I will drink the cup. So these three claims, I want to look at those because to me, as we look at these claims, again, I hope that as we preach uh, cross life, no matter who is preaching, we stick to the text and that in the end, what we're left with is a bigger view of Jesus, a God, a greater understanding of, of God's redemptive work on our behalf. So claim one, when they say we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus proclaims, I am he. All right. A better translation is probably going to come down to I am. So whenever he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he says, I am. But the way he says it is actually very reflective of how he would make his own claims to divinity and to deity earlier in John. He would say, I am he. And to say, I am, in the Old Testament, that's what, that's what God said to Moses whenever he said, whenever they ask who I am, you tell them I am. I am it. And that's what happens here. Okay, so that's why, that's why whenever Jesus says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth and he says, I am. It says that they draw back and they fall down which I think is absolutely interesting because these men obviously hate him. These men obviously are there to come and arrest him. They are not followers of Christ or of God. They might believe they're followers of God. They might believe, Scripture says, that they're actually doing honor for God and doing a good work because of what they're going to do to the disciples and to Jesus. But they don't really get it is what I'm saying. And yet whenever he says, I am, then the one that they were going to arrest... They fall to their knees. And here's all I can think. I've, I've read commentators, and by the way, commentators waste a lot of time, okay? You can read a lot of commentary to figure out why they came with torches and weapons. And I'm sitting there I'm like, really, guys, come on. Like, but here's what I think it really probably was. That even though they hated Jesus, they could not deny the power he had. That there is this impulsive response that whenever he says, I am he, they are thrust back in conviction and in that moment that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And that is just a glimpse of it. And then in the moment while they're there, Jesus said, I'm asking, who are you here for? They're like, Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, I'm him. That's me right here. And so he calls him back. His calm in this moment 
reflects even again that he is in absolute authority right here. He did not shy from his captors, is what I'm saying. He didn't shy, he didn't hide, he didn't move away. He went to where he knew that all things would happen. He knew it was his hour. We already saw that in John 17. He steps into this. He doesn't shy from his, from his captors, but he's going to declare his identity to them. And he displays such a meekness here that he is going to be totally submissive to God in this moment. He will drink the cup. Philippians 2.9 is a great uh, passage to underline uh, in your Bible. If you haven't already, you can visit it here in a little bit. Actually, you know what? Forget that. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Um, hold your place there. Flip to your right. Go to Philippians. Incredible verse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. This name of Jesus, because they said, we're coming for one person. He said, who? And they said, Jesus. He's like, that's me. So at that name of Jesus, it says, Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why take you there? It's because of this. The name to which every knee would bow, he will endure mocking and disgrace and will bow his knee to the Father's will. So all of creation, all of existence, all that God has done will bow and does bow to the name of Jesus. And that same Jesus bows to the Father's will. In other words, this is a pretty significant moment. That even as the soldiers bowed, he is willing to go. His life was not taken from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. Remember the good shepherd sermons that we preached? The good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd willingly, in another verse, lays down his life so that he can take it up again. And in the good shepherd passage throughout John, he even says, no one will take my life from me, but I will give it. That's exactly what's happening here. Y'all, the gospel is so much richer than a presentation that we give to try and, and close the deal for salvation. That's, that's just telling people the gospel. But the richness of the gospel is that the King of glory has come down and it changes our lives every single day and in this moment. Whenever we go from here, it's not about the past presentation of the gospel. It's that in this moment, the gospel still affects me because that King is on high and He came for us and He never relented. So in your darkest moments, when things are the absolute hardest, Whenever we don't know what's going on in our marriage or at work and there's all this confusion in the world, there's one thing that's absolutely sure. Christ never relented in coming for sinners. He to whom every knee will bow willingly came for us. He makes a second claim. The second claim is this. He tells them, let the disciples go. And I love this. You know what they do? They do it. Like, so Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. They bow down. He's like, get up. I'm Jesus. And he's like, okay, so you came for me. They're going free. And they let them go. I mean, it might not seem like that as significant a thing, but I think it kind of is because you know what it says is that Jesus is still calling the shots. You came for me. You didn't come for them. They're going free. And his disciples go free. 
So Jesus in absolute control. He will be taken. His disciples will not. He will be bound. His disciples will not. He will give himself. His disciples will go free. Those are his decisions. So these men who come under the cover of darkness with evil intent in their hearts, they are not the kings. They are not the authority. They are pawns used by the prince of the power of darkness. And they're going to try and fulfill this task that they've been commissioned to do. But everything is really beyond their control and scope. Everything is in his hour. And so I want to remind you, I think this is a perfect place to stop and remind you. Look at the image here. Like what we see on the Mount of Olives right over here is a small glimpse of what we're going to see on Golgotha. Like on this mount to this mount, right here, we see that Christ has sacrificed himself for their safety, just as on the cross he will sacrifice himself for our safety. We see that he declares that his disciples will go free, and because of his death on the cross, his disciples, like us, we go free. Like there's a moment right there where Christ intercedes for his disciples that we can see where he will intercede for the saints. There's a much bigger picture that this actually kind of points to. I'll just put it this way. Here on the Mount of Olives is a small image of Golgotha's totality. The Son of Man has come to sacrifice himself to destroy the works of Satan. They do not take him captive. He gives himself and sets the captives free. That's what happened in the Mount of Olives. That's what happens on Golgotha. And now, claim three. He says, he will drink the cup of the Father. Do you all remember Matthew 26? It's one of the coolest like, things that Jesus says to his captors. And I, I kind of wanted to turn there, but I'm trying to stay focused because I know I'm ADD. In Matthew 26, that's where Jesus says to them because they come with their, their clubs or lanterns. And he talks about angels and legions of angels. Do you all remember what he says? He says, do you not know that I could call down legions of angels? Like, why did you bring clubs? Why did you bring torches? I could call down, or God could send down legions of angels to fight on my behalf. So I just think it's kind of cool. I just want to throw that back out there. But he doesn't do it. And so what he says is to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? We can do a whole lot with that. I want to kind of plant a seed or two real quick. But if I give Jackson like something to drink and I just hand him a cup. I don't think ever in his mind does it cross his mind. I bet my dad poisoned this. He's probably trying to kill me off right now. He's never going to think that. Now he's going to. Now he's going to not drink anything I give him today. But he's probably thinking what? My dad knows what's best. He's probably going to say what's in it. But he also knows I'm not going to give him something that I know he hates. Some of you parents, like, I see you and your kids exchanging glances. I don't know what y'all did to him, but... But they probably are going to question you. Let's play a fun game at home today. Hey, kid, drink what's in the cup and see how that goes. Let me know. But the, but the point is this, that whenever the father gives the child a cup, the child just inherently trusts. It's just how it works. So the son trusts the cup that the father gives him. I want to look at this. Go to, go to Matthew 26. We're actually going to do Matthew, Mark, Luke. We already see what's in John. I'm going to read John to you again here in a second. But Matthew 26, because let's keep the full scope of this hour in place. Matthew 26. Because here's what it says in John 18. While you're turning to Matthew 26, here's what it says in John 18, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the way John presents it, which I, I think is right and fair, is that Jesus is saying, hey, this is the cup I'm going to drink, Peter. Now, there's another thing, just something to think on, because commentators, again, waste way too much time on the wrong things. Why did Peter cut off the ear? Commentators, in many times, like many different volumes, have commented that Peter's a really bad aim. He was aiming for the head, and he, and he got the ear. Y'all, come on. Like, I don't think that that's the thrust of the text. Like, Peter cut off the ear. I'm good with that. All right, well, what we should focus on is this. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's resolute. This is it. But, but look at the journey to it. Matthew 26, verse 39. Jesus is praying. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42 says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So there is that human response in Jesus. He knows all that's about to come to him, right? He's knowing all things from John 4 and this moment of prayer and stuff like that. He knows what this cup is actually going to mean. And he even says, God, could you just take it? Like if there's any way, any other way, let it go. But if it can't go any other way, I will drink it. Flip to your right, go to Mark. Mark 14, 36. Mark 14, 36, Jesus is praying, and it's a, again, the synoptic gospels, they, they sync up, all right, so, but in this one, Mark says that Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I love that. Don't we love that? All things are possible through Christ who strengthens me, okay? So here's what Jesus says, all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Flip to your right, uh, to Luke 22, verse 42. Luke 22, 42 says, Jesus praying again, and says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Scripture elsewhere says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that's what Jesus knows. Your will is to crush me if there's any way for this cup. Like you can do all things, God. Like make it happen any other way. Remove the cup from me. Yet if you won't remove the cup, I will drink it. And I know that we could probably make like a good application for us right now. Like, oh, did God send me a cup? I just need to drink this cup. I don't think that's the point of the passage. I think the point of the passage, y'all, is look at Jesus who said, for their sake, I will become sin so that they can become righteousness. I will drink this cup. So I want to be very careful because we can sometimes, and I, I know I remind you this a lot, we can take all of Scripture and make it about us. We are so idolatrous that we can do that and not even realize we're doing it. And I think that there are many passages that are for us. But I think the most applicable thing, and I'll say this again at the end, that we can garner from these verses is to see Christ and His sacrifice. That changes everything. Whenever Christ is glorified in our lives, sin loses its taste. Temptation pales whenever we are looking at the throne of God. And so we always want that higher view of God because it will aid us in walking through this life. But y'all look at this. Jesus is willing to do this. He is willing to do absolutely everything that is about to come to Him. What we discover in Scripture is what He willingly lived for us. If we're not careful, sometimes we go, well, Jesus could do that because Jesus was God. 
He can love in such a way that I can. He can sacrifice like I can. You know, Jesus was man. The Word became flesh. A real man endured this. He bled and died. And He was obedient unto death, not necessarily because of us, we're the benefactors, but because of God. Look at all of His prayers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why did He drink the cup? Because God said, drink the cup. I do believe that He bled and died for us. Not taken away from that. Don't mishear me. I do believe that He became sin for us. That's all scriptural. But don't miss this. It was the Father's will that sent Him and that held Him to the cross. He would glorify God in that moment. God, glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You. Isaiah fifty three seventeen so that we don't miss like that this this was not a cold callous god it says out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied out of the anguish that jesus will endure out of that anguish he will see and be satisfied with god's redemptive work it also says that jesus christ went to the cross despising the shame but for the joy set before him and is now sitting at the right hand of god he despised the cross and the shame that he would endure and yet he went. And now he sees and he is satisfied. He is satisfied in the gathering here. He is satisfied in the gathering at another church right down the road and at another church right across town in a church in another country. Whenever saints who believe and call on his name gather together and they are washed and redeemed in the blood, Christ is satisfied. He despised the cross, but he sees that the Father's will was perfect. So, I love what he says. Put your sword in its sheath, shall, not, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Such was his deep trust of the Father, his deep love for his disciples, that he would drink the, the cup that the Father had given him. That's what's going on in John 18, 1 through 12. And after he says, I will drink the cup, look at verse 12. They arrest him and they take him off. So what are we going to be preaching over the coming weeks? Jesus on trial. Jesus mocked. Jesus beaten. Jesus crucified, and praise the Lord, amen, Jesus resurrected because death cannot hold him. So here's the conclusion. Like, what's the application like? Okay, Ricky, like, we get it. What do I do with this? I'm about to leave here. We're going to begin in the the van, and we're going to be driving home, and I've got to walk through. Like, what are my action? What's the action plan here? What are the steps? Y'all just see the Savior. Like, that's enough sometimes, I think. Like, you want me to tell you to read your Bible more? Absolutely. Do you want to consider which one would I be like? That's, that's fine. But I think the biggest application of this passage is see the Savior. What He willingly did on our behalf. It's not a gospel presentation for conversion right here. It's a gospel presentation of Christ on the cross. Like, it's just what it is. Problem is, is we tend to make Christianity so much about everything else and what we do besides Christ on the cross. Whenever if we would just see Christ on the cross, it transforms everything about how we think, how we act, what we, what we desire. So we're going to sing a final song of reflection. And, and my application is this. Just reflect. Simply dwell on that idea of what Christ endured and sacrificed for your sake and for my sake so that we might be called children of God. Just reflect on that. By His wounds we are healed. He is absolutely worthy of your thanks and praise as you pray and sing. Um, He's worthy of your devotion as you go. 
but he was committed to the Father's will. And so my greatest application for you is just see and savor Jesus. Just dwell on him. Because once you go from this place, we know life gets crazy and you don't have time to pause. You don't have time to reflect and dwell. So to me, that's what the church is about, equipping the saints so that they can go out and do the work. But we need this equipping to take place. So y'all, let's pray. Lord, we're, we're in John, and it's your word that you moved by your Holy Spirit, John, to write. And John wrote it uniquely in his style, but he wrote it by your spirit and by your words. Lord, what your spirit delivered, Lord, help, your, help us to receive by your spirit. But Lord, my desire for, for Cross Life Fort Smith in a broad general sense and, and in a very real sense for all the faces that I see here today and that I will be praying for throughout the week is that they would see you glorified in their life. That whatever idols it is that, that seem to take place and whatever preference it is of our life and comfort that we like to put in that place, Lord, may we see that your comfort and your preferences you laid aside so that you could die for us. And you have called us how perfectly you reveal to your, uh, to your people, Lord, through, through Andy, Lord, that, that you have called us to come and die as well. So as Christ has fallen a, a single sheath of wheat, Lord, you have risen so that others may rise with you. Lord, may we always glory in the gospel. May we take joy in your work. And may we always seek to honor you in our lives. Thank you for your word. May it wash us, may it sanctify us. May you equip us to walk in your ways. Amen. All right, Mark, if you'll lead us. Yes, sir. We'll do one more song. We're going to sing.